Skittles contain something called titanium dioxide. I mean, the ingredient list is overwhelming, which should be sort of the first clue that there's a problem here. And what you will discover if you punch this into PubMed is that titanium dioxide is something that's been shown to actually induce dysbiosis, meaning cause harm to the microbes in our gut. So this is not just eating food that's got sugar in it. This is eating food that's got sugar in it and these other things. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Asheville, North Carolina, Fremont, California, and Cork, Ireland. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 95 of season 5, number 394 overall. Five foods you should stop eating today. Are you eating any of them? Well, one is one of the most popular candies in the entire world, and that is a fact that is not so sweet. But the others could be in your pantry or in your refrigerator or as close as your next meal. The fact is, if you eat any of these five, over time, we're talking about not just an upset stomach or a headache, but a higher risk of more sinister diseases. So what are these five foods? We will be finding out from our friend and best-selling author, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He, of course, is the guru of gut health, and he joined me on the exam room live this week to get us feeling good inside and out. Plus, we opened up the doctor's mailbag, took questions from the exam roomies who joined us live. Cal was curious about sauerkraut and whether the health benefits there decrease from heat during the pasteurization process. And Stephen was wondering what happens to gut bacteria if you go on a seven-day or longer water fast. So we're going to be diving into all of that in just a minute. But before we do... In case you missed the big announcement on the last show, we will be kicking off 2023 with our All Stars of Health. This is a series of live episodes with the pillars of the health community. They will be here to get you optimized as you head into the new year. And it all begins on January 3rd with Dr. Michael Greger. The next day, January 4th, The Exam Room Live is back with Dr. Neil Barnard. January 5th, Dr. Will Bolsowitz making his 2023 debut. And then on January 6th, Rip Esselstyn will be here. The following Monday, January 9th, T. Colin Campbell. January 10th will be Cyrus Kambata, plus many others, including Dan Butner. So stay tuned, more names to be announced. Two weeks of live shows starting every single day. The Exam Room Live, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook, kicking off January 3rd with Dr. Michael Greger, and of course, right back here on the podcast as well. But let's get rolling now with today's show and the five foods you should not wait until the new year to get out of your diet. You should kick them to the curb today. And what are they? Let's find out with the gut health guru himself, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. 
my friend. It is so good to see you here. Happy holidays. Appreciate you taking the time. Hello, Charles. Hello, William. <laughs> it's good to see you too. I give you all of that, and you give me hello, Charles. Nice. <laughs> I was trying. I was trying to keep a straight face and, and just say that, but it didn't work very well. So, hello, yeah. everyone. Yeah. I'm coming to you live from the Fiber Field stu- Studio, presented by Chuck Carroll. My guy, my guy. I'm glad that you still have that plaque, man. Um, Dr. B, let's start with these five foods. And honestly, I got this idea from something that you posted on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. And one of the foods, as I said at the top, is one of the most popular candies in the entire world. As a matter of fact, 220 million pieces are produced every single day. You crunch that number, 80.3 billion over the course of a year. One of the foods on your list, Skittles. What gives, man? (laughs) Well, you know, first of all, let me say, out of 220 million produced, I was probably consuming a million myself per year uh, at one point. (laughs) But, you know, the issue with Skittles, there are a couple of things. you know, one of them is the different colorings and food dyes that are being used to give them that pop in color. Uh, there's some problems there, but more importantly, Skittles contain something called t- titanium dioxide. And you can see it on the label if you actually just flip it over and take a look. I mean, the ingredient list is overwhelming, which should be sort of the first clue that there's a problem here. But you see this titan- titanium dioxide and what you will discover if you pu- if you punch this into PubMed is that titanium dioxide is something that's been shown to actually induce dysbiosis, meaning cause harm to the microbes in our gut. So this is not just eating food that's got sugar in it. This is eating food that's got sugar in it and these other things. And that's why when it comes to ultra processed foods, we have to be careful because sometimes we discover, you know, years after Skittles were released into the public for consumption, including the million that I was eating myself. Uh, we discovered that there could be a problem when it comes to how it affects our health. You know, Skittles, man, I, I used to love getting them for Halloween and the little fun size. And then I would kind of raid my friends or my brother's bags and get their fun size Skittles as well. I always like the red ones and the green ones. Um, not just because it's the holiday season right now, but those two were just my absolute favorite. And then I remember as I got older, I heard particular warnings about some red food coloring, the, the like red dye number, whatever the heck, and how that is just like the worst possible thing that you could put in your body. And I was like, eh, that is one rainbow I don't want to taste anymore. Is that the same though for like a lot of other candies though? I mean, in all honesty, like, could you say the same thing about like sweet tarts or red hots or whatever is ultra dyed and ultra processed? Yeah. And it's, it's actually the red and the yellow that we have the most concerns about when it comes to the food coloring. But then if, if we were to talk about the titanium dioxide itself, obviously Skittles are not the only food that contains titanium dioxide. And you also notice that despite um, emerging evidence that's suggesting that there may actually be issues with this component of food. Despite this, the Food and Drug Administration has not withdrawn this ingredient from the food supply. It continues to be a part of it. And this is, you know, it sort of highlights some of the trouble that we have where foods can be approved through a process that I discussed in my first book, Fiber Fuels, called GRAS generally recognized as safe. And the issue with GRAS is that you don't need to do human studies you certainly don't need to do long-term human studies. Almost, There's almost no long-term data with any of these foods or food ingredients. 
simply all you need to do is fill out a packet of information that basically says, based upon our assumptions, we believe that this food would be safe for human consumption. And that's, um, to me, problematic because then we end up with, here we are, we have 10, it's not, it's not just yellow number five and red and titanium dioxide. Uh, here we are and there are 10,000 food additives. And I'm not here saying that all 10,000 are causing harm. It's probably a small fraction of them. But the problem is, what, what I am saying is that we're, they're not adequately studied in humans. They're not adequately studied over the long term. And we don't really know what their effect is, but we see this, you know, sort of emergence and then it's hard to walk it back. All right. So let's put all of that to the side, though. I want to look at this from another angle and ask you flat out, is there any sort of nutritional benefit whatsoever to a pack of Skittles? No. <laughs> Asked and answered one word. All right. So uh, let's go from a sweet candy to artificial sweeteners, which happen to be second on your list. So I know that sometimes if you go into like a 7-Eleven or something like that, you flip over the pink packets of artificial sweetener that they have there with the coffee section. Uh, it gives you that warning right on the back of the packet, like may cause cancer or known to cause cancer in certain animals. Um, is that why artificial sweeteners make your list? There's a, there's a number of reasons why artificial sweeteners make the list. And I will acknowledge that um, uh, categorically calling all of them bad is probably a bit unfair because there are some of them that they actually may be perfectly fine. But I think that the issue, what I'm, what I'm trying to bring attention to here is that there's been this general attitude that if it's a zero calorie, then it must be healthy. And this is, this is exactly what the food industry wants us to believe. Because then we will buy whatever it is that they're selling that happens to have these artificial sweeteners and zero calories. But what we have to acknowledge is there's more to nutrition than calories in and calories out. The quality of our nutrition is extremely important. And that these foods that have zero calories, like artificial sweeteners, they still, they still come into contact with our gut microbes, Chuck. And so because of this, they can have an effect on the way that our gut microbes are structured. They also can have an effect on other parts downstream from our gut microbes, such as our metabolism. And so there, for example, is concern that for people that have diabetes, you consume artificial sweeteners. They don't actually affect your blood sugar on the spot because they are not a carbohydrate that can be processed by your body, but they may alter the gut microbiome. And next time, your next meal, when you eat food, you will unfortunately see your blood sugar go up as a result of what you had at your last meal. Now, by the way, this kind of raises uh, an interesting concept, concept of nutrition that I actually personally love called the second meal effect. And the second meal effect is the opposite of what I'm proposing here. You know, I just said artificial sweeteners may make you uh, less tolerant uh, in terms of your blood sugar at the next meal. The opposite of this is actually what we see when people consume whole grains and legumes. The second meal effect is where you eat whole grains and legumes and actually your blood sugar improves at the next meal, regardless of what you eat. And that's because these legumes and whole grains are so good for your gut microbiome. Hey man, the second meal effect. I love that. Um, let's qualify artificial sweeteners here a little bit deeper. I think that there may be some people who are watching us right now or listening to the podcast wondering, well, what's the difference between those pink packets of sweet and low and then stevia or monk fruit or something like that, which are called more natural sweeteners? 
Yeah. So um, let me just say this. I think that moderation is an important word here. So what we don't want is to go from high sugar beverages and like excessive consumption of that to excessive consumption of any of these, frankly, artificial uh, sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners. But given the choice, how do I sort of see this? What are the ones that I personally reach for when I want something sweet? And let me just say, Chuck, like I, I used to be um, the fattiest of dairy products in my coffee along with three packets of Splenda. That's the way I used to be 10 years ago. And now I'm just straight black coffee and it works great for me. And I don't, I don't miss it. It, it tastes fantastic, fantastic. But what are the ones that I reach for? So I personally would opt for stevia, which by the way is naturally sourced. Um, with monk fruit, the one thing you have to be careful about, monk fruit I think is great, but the issue is that monk fruit is always blended with something else. So you, like, if you check the package of monk fruit, you'll see this. Many times it's blended with erythritol. I'm actually okay with erythritol. The reason why I'm okay with erythritol, Chuck, is that um, there was a study done where they looked at the effect of erythritol on the gut microbiome. And what they discovered is actually erythritol gets ends up being absorbed and excreted by the body before it really comes into contact with the microbes. So erythritol is an example of a non-nutritive sweetener that it can give you the sweet effect that you're looking for. And it doesn't seem to really have any sort of negative consequence with the gut. With all of these, there's a caveat. If you have digestive health problems, digestive health problems, like bloating, gas, cramping, change in bowel habits, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, as a gastroenterologist, I would recommend that you eliminate all of these for a week. Because even the ones that I'm saying, I think that, you know, in moderation, they're okay. Stevia, monk fruit, erythritol, they can definitely cause digestive symptoms. If you eliminate them and your symptoms improve, then basically you just enhanced your life with the knowledge that your symptoms were in part being triggered by these, these components of your food that you don't need. All right, before we move on to number three on your list here, let's do a quick little exam roomy roll call. Uh, Kara says, good morning from Sydney, Australia, where it is 4 a.m. on December 15th. Dedication. That's awesome. Dedication. I love that so much. It's also much. summertime there right now, which is kind of cool. I will take a slice of that as well right now, man. Oh my gosh, it's so cold here. Uh, Sophie at 1208, Dr. B is my favorite guest, totally buying fiber fueled for my mom for Christmas, and she's going to love it. Heart emoji. How about that, man? Merry Christmas. I hope her mom isn't watching. That's a little bit of a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> um, but very cool. Uh, Roller Girl checking in from uh, Vegas. Hello. Good to see you. Hi, Annette. And Melissa loves to draw. Says, I'm catching the tail end of a live show for the first time. I love this channel. Well, uh, thanks for being here live for the very first time, Melissa. Uh, but the good news is we still have plenty of show to go. This is definitely not the tail end. And Chuck. Um, yes, sir. Real quick, Monica in the ch in the chat box. By the way, thank you to all the people who are live and active in the chat right now. I absolutely love it. Monica says, Erythritol makes my stomach hurt so bad I pass out. And Holy this is mother. an example. This is an example where um, I'm not going to say that like the normal response to Erythritol is that it can make you pass out. But what I am saying is that there is definitely a, a, a percentage of people, particularly those who have underlying irritable bowel syndrome or other digestive health problems, that these ones that I'm saying, you know, they're okay in moderation, they may cause trouble like this. And so it's just something to be conscious and aware of. So thank you for that. 
Yeah, that doesn't sound like much fun at all. Um, no. I'll tell you what, though. Let's go ahead and log a couple of other uh, health frequent flyer miles. Helen right now is checking in from Kenya in Africa. Very cool. Uh, we have uh, Lou, who's in Hamburg, Germany. We've got Stephanie in California. We've got Leanne's Creations in East Texas. We're all over the place, man. We are raising health IQs on a global level. Number three on your list is dairy. So we're talking about milk. We're talking about cheese. We're talking about anything in the dairy category. Why does this make your list? Okay. This makes my list because I'm coming from the perspective of a gastroenterologist. People walk into the clinic. They say, Dr. B, I'm having gas, bloating, abdominal cramps, diarrhea. I'm trying to figure out what it is. Here's what I say to them. Have you eliminated dairy? Have you eliminated artificial sweeteners? Like, I'm not kidding. That's literally the first thing that I would say. Have, have you done those things? And when they say to me, oh, no, no, like I, I'm continuing to consume some dairy products, then what I say to them, just like I just said a moment ago, take a week off of the artificial sweeteners and see how you feel. I would say the exact same thing here. Take a week off of dairy products, see how you feel. Now, that is not advocating for you to take a week off and then bring them back. I just don't think that you really need them. I think that we're healthier when we reduce, when we moderate our dairy consumption. Um, you know, if you choose to consume dairy, that's ultimately up to you. But from my perspective, if you have digestive health symptoms and you're trying to figure out what's triggering your digestive health symptoms, gas, bloating, discomfort, diarrhea, check out dairy, try eliminating it, see how you feel, and you will be shocked. There is a huge percentage of you right now who will feel better because you do this. I want to move on to number four. And number four on the list here is white bread. And a lot of people, I don't think it'll be any surprise that it makes a list of foods that you're going to want to avoid. But in terms of our gut health, if somebody eats a slice of white bread, how does that compare to when they eat a slice of a bread that I know you're really high on, which is sourdough? Well, um, nutritional quality is extremely important. So whatever sort of category of nutrition we're talking about, there's a hierarchy that includes bread. And when you talk about eating straight white bread, you have to bear in mind that when they produce this flour, they are producing the lowest nutritional value flour possible because essentially what they're doing is they're keeping just the starchy element of the grain and they're discarding the part of the grain that actually is beneficial to your health that contains the fiber and the protein and the other nutrients that are that are beneficial to our microbes. So the problem is not the wheat. The problem is what we're doing to the wheat in the process of producing white flour. In many cases, it also is being bleached. <laughs> what do you think that does to the microbes that actually are a part of the wheat uh, grain itself? Because there are microbes that are part of that grain. And we know this because when we talk about sourdough bread, Chuck, it's quite fascinating. Anyone who's here right now listening to us, you could make a sourdough starter at home with ingredients that you already have because there's only two ingredients, flour and water. And you're going to say to me, but Dr. B, what about the yeast? The yeast is what makes the bread rise. Well, guess what? There is yeast and there are microbes that are a part of the flour already. That's because they were living on the grain prior to it being uh, ground, ground down. They were living on the grain. They're already there inside the bag. 
And so when you simply add water to this and you maintain it over the course of time, you will actually allow those microbes to thrive and grow. And this is how you create sourdough bread. And in creating that sourdough bread, those microbes, they are transforming that flour. And it's becoming something that's even more healthful than it previously was. Now you can have, you know, what I would describe as junky sourdough bread. Junky sourdough bread is made from white flour. Or alternatively, you can create your own um, your own starter, your own sourdough bread at home, where you maintain the quality by choosing and opting for higher quality flour that's going to include the fiber, the protein, the other nutrients. I know you you make your own sauerkraut. Are you making your own uh, sourdough as well for the holidays? So I haven't been making sourdough yet this year because <laughs> when you do it, it's you have to commit in a way, right? Because it's it's a daily activity and you're going to keep doing this. What I have done, Chuck, is I got my wife for her birthday. Her birthday was back on November 8th. For her birthday, I got her a pizza oven. And I will actually make a sourdough crust. And it's really cool because then you can slide this crust into the pizza oven. It's like, boom, one minute and you have a delicious pizza. Just add some, some sauce. We had some plant-based cheese, some vegetables. Boom. Fantastic. What is your take? That that sounds amazing. What is your take on pizzas that don't have cheese on top? A lot of people just like the sauce and the toppings here. They're so good. It's pretty daggone tasty, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I don't think I don't think that the cheese is a requirement in order to have pizza. I think that the key is, you know, it kind of boils down to and here you know, here's one of the things that I love about this. When we make our own pizza, you know, even if I were to call up the pizza shop down the street and say to them, you know, keep the cheese off, just add the toppings sauce. Even then, it's not as good as what I can make at home using my own ingredients, using my own high quality flour. And so it's it's kind of cool because you feel different um, when you make your own pizza because you're controlling the quality of what's going into the ultimate product. And so I think like to me, it's just sort of proof of principle. Nutritional quality matters. Well, I'm telling you this much. The next time I'm down your way, I'm inviting myself over for dinner. I'm not waiting for an invitation. I'm inviting myself over for a pizza night. Um, I, I got to see this oven in action, man. That sounds amazing. Oh, dude, it gets up to 600 degrees. It's like it's crazy. Yeah. And, that's, and so it has the stone at the bottom. So you slide the pizza in and literally you wait 15 seconds and then you got to start rotating it. And there's a technique. There's a technique to how you do it. But basically you rotate it and then after a minute, boom, pull it out. Dr. B, the pizza MD. I love it. Uh, all right. So here we go. The list as it stands. Number one, Skittles. Number two, artificial sweeteners. Number three on your list, Dr. B, was milk and dairy. Number four, white bread. And the number five food that you're going to want to stop eating today, processed meat. So that's deli meats and that's hot dogs. Not surprised necessarily that they're on the list, but I am curious why they made this particular list for you. Um, the World Health Organization has classified processed meats as a carcinogen, not a probable carcinogen, but a carcinogen. What this means is that their scientists, some of the world's leading scientists, sitting down and doing a complete review of the evidence, have connected the consumption of this food to the development of cancer. From my perspective, recognizing that I, as a gastroenterologist, I'm the person who have di who has diagnosed colon cancer throughout my career. It's heartbreaking. 
it's way more common than any of us should ever accept. And um, unfortunately, it's easy to kind of dismiss as, oh, it's not that like, it's not going to happen to me until unfortunately for some of us, it does. And one of those strategies, first of all, you and I have talked about this, Chuck, like I wholeheartedly believe in taking advantage of our healthcare system for prevention of colon cancer, for early diagnosis. But diet is one of the strategies that we can employ and the avoidance of the food that is like clearly demonstrated to be a carcinogen and increase our risk of developing colorectal cancer. I mean, that's just so obvious. So from my perspective, like I don't see, these are excessively popular foods, which is disappointing because they're causing excessive harm. No question about it. Belongs on the list, my friend. Thank you very much. Again, I got this idea from your Instagram, man. And I know that you are just, you're putting up a whole lot of good information up there. I love your video style these days, man. It's its a lot of fun what you're doing up there. These little, um, I, 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 they're not testimonials. It's just you on camera giving the facts. You know, there's, it's just, it's good, man. It's just solid information. Um, big fan, big fan. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. You're welcome, William. Uh, anyway, uh, Robert Goodman, uh, who's with us today watching in Silver Spring, just wants to wish everybody a happy holiday. So happy holidays right back at you, Robert. Let's go ahead and open up the doctor's mailbag now. So if there's a question that you would like to ask Dr. Bolsowitz, go ahead, drop it in the comments, the chat. We're going to get to as many as we can here with about the 15 minutes or so that we have uh, remaining here. And let's start with a question from Tammy at 1227. How do you make sourdough pizza crust and how long does it take? Actually, so it's not hard. It's not hard. Basically, the key is to make it the starter. Once you make the starter, as you maintain that starter, you're going to be discarding on a routine basis from, you have to basically like remove some of it and then add in more flour and water. And so as a part of discarding it, there's things that you can do to, um, to actually, um, use what you're discarding. And that's where the, the fiber fields cookbook, this is my book that just came out in May. That's where that comes in. And you can see here, Tuscan flatbread. And, um, so this is, this is one of the ways in which like, this is a, uh, right up here. Ooh. Okay, there it is. This is the the discard from a sourdough starter that you can use to create a sourdough pizza bread. Huh. Look at that. Baker Bolsowitz, man. I'm digging it. I'm yeah, digging man. it a lot. Um, let's go back to our conversation about sweeteners. Catherine at 1219, is sweetening with honey or maple syrup a good combination to use instead of the artificial sweeteners that you were talking about? Yeah, I think in moderation. I mean, obviously, these are high... Um, glycemic foods, they, they do offer some potential benefit in the sense that they may contain polyphenols, like particularly the maple syrup, the darker the syrup, the uh, more polyphenol content it has. And so, so there, there is some potential benefit that's there, but I, I just want to emphasize moderation. Let's not go crazy here. Bot Shiva and Sarah Rain, 1209. What can I eat on a whole food plant-based diet if I'm fructose intolerant? So kind of keeping with the sweet theme here, but probably not the sweetest question to ask. Sorry that they're having this issue. Uh, yeah, you know, that's a good question, Chuck. So it's off the top of my head. I'm trying to remember. So I did uh, a course recently all about FODMAPs. And what I want this person to 
uh, understand is that fructose is, first of all, it's a, it's a sugar uh, commonly found in fruit. And that fructose is one of the major categories of FODMAPs. FODMAP intolerance is frequently seen in people who suffer with irritable bowel syndrome. And we believe that it's actually possible to um, improve your ability to process and digest these foods. So the key here in my course, I actually had, like, I don't, I don't have it readily available. It would take me a couple minutes to find it, Chuck, but I had a list of what are the foods that you can consume that are lower in fructose. And it's something that you could probably find on the internet. But the other key to understand here is that this doesn't mean that you eliminate foods that contain fructose, because that would be a very broad elimination that ultimately is not in your best health interest. What you want to do with those particular foods is just be conscious, be a conscious consumer, understand that this, okay, this is the type of food that your gut struggles a little bit more to process and digest. We need to moderate the amount that we consume. But what I expect you to find is that by starting low and going slow over time, you can incrementally increase the amount of these foods that you're able to consume and tolerate. And um, so that's the exciting part about this is that you don't need to eliminate these foods. You just need to reduce them. Start low, go slow. Little bits of bliss, 1215. That's a fun name. Uh, question, are raisins healthy? I use them as something sweet in my oatmeal and homemade trail mix. What do you say? I mean, I think the raisins and I think raisins in moderation are something that certainly you can be adding to your trail mix or, or your oatmeal. Um, you know, uh, would I want people to eat exclusively grapes? Of course not. Grapes are not a lot of fiber, a decent bit of sugar. Um, that's kind of what you're getting with the raisins. But at the same time, like I, 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 I guess I would just say at the end of the day, you know, this does have some redeeming nutrients. There are some good things there. Consuming it in moderation is something that I certainly would advocate for. All right. Let's take a question that was sent in on Instagram by a gentleman by the name of Cal. Is pasteurized or store-bought sauerkraut still beneficial even though it has been cooked? So do you lose something in the cooking process? Yeah. So this is an interesting concept. And it's basically a, a question of if you take a fermented food and you heat it, does that, because that's what pasteurization is, does that fermented food still have enhanced nutritional value relative to where it began? And the answer is yes. And we see this in sourdough. So sourdough bread, the microbes are no longer living and present when you heat the food, but yet the remnants of what those microbes produced for us continue to be there. You would see the exact same thing in pasteurized um, sauerkraut. Now, here's the other thing that's kind of interesting about this, Chuck. There's this new world of um, what we would call tindalized probiotics. They, I, I kind of like this name. They, they're also calling them zombie probiotics. And essentially, tindalization is where they actually heat up the probiotic. And then they take what's left over. The, the, the microbes are dead. But they take what's left over and they encapsulate it and they and they take this similar the same way you would take a probiotic. And what they're finding in many cases is that they continue to have unique health benefits. So the point is this, that even if the microbes are not alive, there's actually compelling evidence emerging right now that we're starting to see in the medical literature that's suggesting that even when you just take the, the remnants of the microbes, they're not even alive anymore, but the remnants, there's still health uh, and nutritional value there. Good to hear. 
Tofu Tuesday. I've worn out my fiber-fueled cookbook. The book opens automatically to the beef risotto or sesame broccoli noodles. There you go. That's good, man. You know that they're putting it to work then, man. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I love that. Uh, Andrea, going back to sourdough. Andrea sent this one in on Instagram. Can I eat sourdough bread if I am strongly allergic to wheat? If you are strongly allergic to wheat, then you should not be eating sourdough bread that is made from sourdough. But you can't, but here's the exciting part. If it's a wheat allergy, then that means that it is specific to wheat and does not necessarily mean that you have a problem with rye. And rye, rye flour, makes fantastic sourdough bread. And part of what makes rye flour unique and different is that the nutrient content actually helps to recruit more microbes. The microbes love the rye. And so you can uh, you can make a, a great rye starter and then subsequently use wheat flour to make your sourdough bread. But you could also make a rye starter and then just follow through all the way to the finish line with rye flour to, once again, make a fantastic sourdough bread. So, and the Polish, my Polish grandparents would be very, very excited to hear me talking about this because uh, growing up, on the table at every single meal was a loaf of rye bread. Family go. tradition. Oh man, rye bread. It took me a little while to acquire the taste for rye bread, but once I did, man, I mean, I I just fell in love with it. Oh, I um, love it. Yeah. It's so it's good. Once it hits your lips, so good. Um, we have some people looking for clarity on a few of the uh, other foods that were on the list. Okay. Um, looking at vegan versions, what's your opinion about vegan deli meats? That's a question from Mommy Vegan Nummy at 1226. Vegan deli meats. Um, I So it's hard for me to like, are, are we talking about, because Chuck, maybe you can help me understand this with more clarity so that I understand sure. what I'm answering. Sure. Are we talking about like, like bacon tempeh? Because that to me is like completely healthy. Right. So yeah, right. So bacon tempeh, I would think, um, you know, like the vegan ham slices, the vegan turkey slices, those types of even the vegan bologna. Uh, I've seen okay. vegan liverwurst, like all of that stuff. Okay. I so I I personally have never consumed those particular foods. Um, I I'll, I'll say this: I used to love sandwiches, and like you know Italian subs and stuff like this. I think I wrote about it in my first book. I used to love them. When I transitioned to eating plant based. I stopped eating that way and I started making sandwiches in, in different ways. Um, so, uh, so I'm not consuming those particular products. I think what it comes down to is the level of processing. It's not going to be the same. It's, I mean, let me just say this. It's not going to be the same because what specifically is problematic when it comes to the meats is the way in which elements that are found within meat are modified by the microbes to create carcinogenic compounds. So it's not going to be the same. Would I advocate for vegan meats? Would I say that you should be eating more vegan meats? Of course not. Would I advocate for vegan tempeh, uh, tempeh bacon? A hundred percent, because that's just tempeh with flavoring. Um, so that's sort of where I think that falls out. And a TLT, Chuck, okay, time out. Sorry to interrupt you. Take over, bro. Tempeh, lettuce, tomato with avocado and a splash, if you want, of some balsamic vinegar on sourdough bread. That is everything I need to be happy as a human. Tempeh, lettuce, tomato, and avocado. Now, when I was a kid, we used to have bacon, lettuce, and tomatoes. Right. You know, you have the mayo on there. I miss that. 
Okay, cool. No problem. When you do tempeh, lettuce, and tomato, you get the sort of savory flavor from the tempeh. It's actually good for you. It's good for your microbes. And then the avocado actually sort of replaces the mayo in a far more healthy way. Avocados are actually a great source of fiber. Yeah, man. You get that that creaminess along the bread. Now, would it be too much to ask? And and 13 years ago, if you would have told me, I would have said to do this, I would have said you're out of your ever-loving mind. But would it be too much to put some sprouts on this sandwich as well? Because I think for me, that's next level right there. That's next level. Well, see, sprouts, sprouts to me are something that we should be using liberally. And it, I kind of think of it like the S's, okay? The S's, right. so sandwiches, soups, stews, smoothies, salads. I could keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, the point though is like sprouts are a great accessory. So are fermented foods. Sprouts are a great accessory. So they're not necessarily the centerpiece, but what they are is that you create a meal and then you go, should I throw some sprouts on here? Should I throw some kraut on here? And the answer is generally yes. So by the way, Chuck, I want to point out real quick, we were talking about the bacon, lettuce, and tomato or the tempeh bacon, lettuce, and tomato. And this is, this is page 256 of the Fiberfields cookbook. And um, there was a day where I was craving this a couple couple months ago and I was like, I really want like a, a tempeh bacon sandwich. Um, in Asheville, North Carolina, there's a place that I really love to go to. They have the best tempeh bacon sandwich. So anyway, I made this at home. It's not hard to do. It's actually quite easy. Heavenly, heavenly, my friend. I'm on board with that. And I like your answer about sprouts too. Um, you just said fermented food there for a second. So Tammy at 1233 has kind of an interesting, we're just going to split the difference, kind of cut the conversation in half type of a question here. She said, you're an advocate for fermented foods. You also had dairy on the list of foods that you should not eat. So what is your take on cottage cheese? Is cottage, I don't believe the cottage cheese, as far as I know, Chuck, I don't believe it's fermented. It's curdled. I don't know if that means fermented. I'm not a cheese guy, man. I just don't know. So it's, I mean, it's been so long since I've had cottage cheese. I, I don't believe as far as I know that cottage cheese is fermented. I don't believe that it is. Can, can we do a wacky bit? Let me do a wacky bit. Hey Siri, is cottage cheese fermented? Here's what I found from Epicurious.com to make dry cottage cheese. Milk is lightly fermented, resulting in fresh cheese that's cut into curds, drained, and rinsed. Well, according to Siri and Epicurious.com, it is lightly fermented. Okay, interesting. Um, so, and I would imagine it's pasteurized. Uh, that's what, you, you know, you would have to check the bottle. But I guess here, let's cut to the heart of this question. Because the heart of this question is really about sort of the um, my advocacy for fermented foods against fermented dairy products and whether or not I would advocate for fermented dairy products. And the answer to this question is this. First of all, if you consume dairy products, which look, most people do, if you're consuming dairy products, I would put fermented dairy products at the top of the list in terms of the quality. We're talking about nutritional quality here today. So like kefir, I would put at the top of that list. Now, do I personally consume kefir? The answer is no. Why? 
because you still have, even though it's fermented, even though the nutritional quality is enhanced, you still have elements from the dairy products that I personally don't want to be a part of my, my, my diet. My grandfather died from prostate cancer. The proteins, specifically casein, found in dairy products have been associated with increased risk of developing prostate cancer in men. This is one of the cancer associations between dairy products and cancer that is most uh, clearly demonstrated. So for me, having witnessed my grandfather die when I was a teenager, and this went on over a period of time, having witnessed that, I want nothing to do with those risks. I want to take the steps necessary to reduce my risk of those particular conditions, not enhance those risks. That's my personal choice. Now, on the flip side, what is the fiber content of dairy products? It's zero. Could we do worse than fermented dairy products? Of course we could. There's plenty of other things that you could eat that are less healthy than fermented dairy products, but I would argue that none of them are whole foods plant-based. Whole foods plant-based are always superior choices. So from my perspective, I tend to favor the whole food plant-based approach. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and grab another question here. We'll take two more. I want to make sure that we get some good ones here before we wrap things up. Uh, let's go back to Melissa loves to draw. Are energy bars like cliff bars? These are super popular. Are they beneficial or is it better to stay away from them? I think that when it comes down to these things, you know, I cliff bars, I've had cliff bars. I don't remember the details of cliff bars in terms of like what's contained within the bar. Um, and I, I recall it to be, I may be wrong about this, but I recall it to be at least a moderately processed food, meaning that like, it's not like you're seeing whole ingredients when you open up this bar. Um, so, you know, I, I think what I come back to is, and this is an approach that I would take to any ultra processed food or any sort of processed food is it's not that I never consume these foods that would be completely unfair. I think that we all do on some level, but I would prefer to consume foods that are minimally processed where the ingredient list is rather short, where I recognize all of the ingredients, where I don't have to have a chemistry degree to understand what the ingredients are. By the way, I have a chemistry degree and I still don't understand what most of these ingredients are in most of these ultra processed foods. So that, those are some of the things that I'm kind of looking for. Um, personally, given the choice between creating, like making your own granola at home and consuming that, uh, you know, perhaps with some organic soy milk, versus popping a cliff bar, I would take the homemade food every single time. Um, but I understand that sometimes you need something you're going to throw into your bag and it's simple and it's um, easy. And when that's the case, take a look at the packaging. And again, we want less ingredients. We want more whole foods. We want to minimize added sugar. We want it to be higher in fiber and less uh, ingredients that you need a chemistry degree to understand what they are. All right. I'm going to sneak in an extra question here because a really good one popped up from Bean Burrito that I want to end with um, that I think will put a smile on a lot of people's faces as we head into the new year. Uh, but let's start with an Instagram question from Stephen. Uh, what happens to the millions, I should say, of gut bacteria when you eat no food for two to three weeks and all you're doing is a water fast? The, uh, I felt like you, for a second there, I was hearing the rock. <laughs> the millions and millions of gut bacteria. And Chuck, I knew that you would appreciate that. I, I, don't I know love it, man. Um, so what happens to your gut bacteria when you do a prolonged water fast? Well, I haven't seen any clear evidence to answer this question. 
we have evidence with shorter fasting. And uh, when you look at, for example, if you were to do time-restricted eating, which is a very different thing than a prolonged water fast, when you look at time-restricted eating, you have to understand time-restricted eating, by the way, is the concept of eating within an eight-hour window and not eating during the other 16 hours during the day. So you're eating every day. It's just that you're sort of condensing the window down to a period of time, and then you're giving your gut a break for 16 hours straight. Um, what ends up happening, you have to understand, you're creating an e the environment within this ecosystem, the millions and millions of gut microbes. They, um, they will adapt. And there is this layer of gelatinous-like material that lines your intestines. It's called the mucin layer. We all have it. And it sits right next to the single layer of cells called the epithelial layer. This mucin layer contains carbohydrates. Those carbohydrates become the source of nutrition for these microbes. You will see the emergence when you do time-restricted eating of specific microbes that love to consume the carbohydrates found within the mucin layer. These are mucin-consuming microbes. An example of this are called the lacnospirae. Now, the lacnospirae are interesting because we know, Chuck, that time-restricted eating has metabolic benefits. People lose weight. They improve their blood sugar control improve their blood lipids and uh, does the microbiome have a part of that story the answer appears to be yes this lacnospirae that starts to emerge more prominently in your gut turns out to be a butyrate producing microbe so in essence even though you're not eating you are actually priming your gut so that when you wake up and you consume that fiber rich meal the fiber in that meal will be converted at an even higher rate and with greater efficiency into butyrate. Chuck, uh, a quick thing real quick, and then I want to go back to the water fasting, which is a prolonged fast. A thing real quick. In the UK, this is, I, I'm, I would like to bring this to the US. It's not yet available in the US. But in the UK, we at Zoe are actually conducting a um, intermittent fasting study right now. And basically, people do what I just described, this time-restricted eating. We had 130,000, more than 130,000 people do a clinical trial. Like that is really cool. That's huge. Yeah. Huge. And one of the surprises, this is unpublished. You guys are hearing it here first. Okay. This is like internal Zoe conversations that I'm talking about right now. But one of the things that we, one of the signals that's emerging out of 130,000 people doing time-restricted eating is a reduction in bloating. They have less bloating. Their digestive system feels better. Now, why would that be? Here's why. Because I just said, you're producing, by fasting, you're producing more butyrate-producing microbes. These microbes are designed to help you to process and digest fiber. So when you consume that fiber-rich meal, your gut is actually more efficient and designed for the breakdown of fiber based upon the fact that you gave it a 16-hour break. That is science. That is cool. Wow. Um, real quick on the prolonged water fasting, I would only recommend that people consider doing prolonged fasting under the guidance of a, uh, a medical doctor and that you're being monitored throughout this. We don't truly know the effects. I, 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 I'm going to be honest, because I know that there are some people within the plant-based community who do this, and they do it with... Um, they say great results and I, 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 
certainly respect that. And I think that is great. I do have concerns about the effect of this on the gut microbiome, but I don't yet, I haven't seen data to back it up. If anyone finds a study where people do gut microbiome testing after three weeks of water fasting, I would love, please send it my way. I would love to see it. That is so cool, man. I love the fact that you're involved in such a, a large study, man. I can't wait to see the full results. Thank you for giving us a sneak preview. Uh, very interesting stuff, man. Breaking some news here on the exam room live. Breaking some news here today. Very cool. Uh, final question of the day is a fun one. And I want to kind of couch this by saying, yes, my maturity peaked in the fifth grade, but let's address this as adults and look at it particularly from the role that fiber may play in this question. And the question comes to us from Bean Burrito at 12.03. Got in early with this one. What should you eat in order to have a good, healthy sex life? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> um, well, look, uh, there is actually some evidence that a high fiber diet reduces erectile dysfunction. And if you want to motivate a man, like if you, for example, have someone in your life who is a guy and you're finding that it's difficult to get them to switch over to a plant-based diet, this is the path. This is what motivates men. Fiber is good for erectile dysfunction. Now, when we go beyond this, there are also some nutrients that may be beneficial in terms of this, specifically, for example, nitrates. Um, and you'll find nitrates in beets. So like add more beets to your diet. They have fiber. They also have nitrates. And it's great for a healthy, robust sex life. There it is. Beets, fiber, good to go. Good to go. That's the million dollar question that honestly we all wanted to know. Let's just be honest. We all wanted to know who was, who had the audacity to ask it? Bean Burrito. He's our hero. The exam roomie of the day. All right. Yeah. That's Bean Burrito. Thank you for that question, Bean Burrito. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Hey, look, uh, over on your website, you got big time stuff happening here. Theplantfedgut.com. You've got the uh, Dr. B's Microbiome 21 coming back. Talk to us about this challenge. Yeah, I'm super excited, Chuck. This is, I think, going to be okay. So, let me say this. One of the things that I have tried to do is to um, create ways to engage with many different people from many different backgrounds in a way that works for you on an individual basis. So like, you know, I have social media, I have my books, we do podcasts like right now with us doing the exam room podcast. Um, and then I've created courses. And one of the things that's been important to me is to have courses that are very affordable so that people can come in and do them. Um, there's different levels, you know, different courses are different levels of an investment and different levels of uh, exposure and integration with me. But the Microbiome 21 is a great way to start the brand new year. It's a 21 day challenge that I'm offering to people. And it's intended to be like, yo, come on, get in here and bring your friends and let's all do this together. Last year, Chuck, we had about 8,000 people those 8,000 people, if you did it, like if you're following right now and you did it last year, guess what? I'm inviting you back for free. Come on back. Let's do it again. And for people who did not do it last year, come join us. It's going to be basically 21 days of healthy habits. Now, I want to be clear about one thing real quick, just so that there's no confusion. It's not a 21-day meal plan. So if you're coming expecting me to give you 21 days of recipes, that's not what's actually happening. What's happening is that you're going to spend 21 days with me and we're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about gut health. We're going to talk about building healthy habits. 
because when you build healthy habits over the course of this 21 days, it helps to basically launch you into a healthy and successful 2023, which is what we ultimately want. Um, one last thing I want to just toss out there, Chuck. So uh, I am, I, I have a very strong belief that I should always strive to improve and do better. And so I took what we did last year and we're adding a lot of new content. Like basically my thing was like, okay, let's find the weak points and let's make those strong points for 2023. One of the things that I'm adding is every single day during the 21 days, I'm going to drop a scientific article in with you so that, and I'm going to like give you some thoughts that I have regarding this scientific article. So basically like, that's just like a little side project within the microbiome 21 is that it's 21 days of science, but beyond the 21 days of science, it's also 21 days of community and building healthy habits and having fun together and getting 2023 off to a great start. So I invite anyone who's interested in that, come join us. Let's do it. There it is. The plantfedgut.com. If you're watching this right now on YouTube, there's a link in the show description. So go ahead and click on that and get signed up and get your new year off on a right foot. And then also get your calendar, set a reminder in your phone. Check this out. Here's a major announcement for you. Beginning in the new year, we are getting everything kicked off on the healthiest foot possible. We are doing a two-week series of live shows with the all-stars of health, the top names in the health and nutrition community. That includes you, Dr. B. So everything gets started on January 3rd, Tuesday, January 3rd with Dr. Michael Greger. He will be here for a special live Q&A beginning at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, coming back, doing it the next day with Dr. Neil Barnard. And then on January 5th, Dr. B, you're going to be back in the hot seat. You're going to be joining us for the first time in the new year. January 6th, we've got Rip Esselstyn, coming on the show, then Monday, you're not going to want to miss this. January 9th, T. Colin Campbell will be here on the exam room live. The following day, it's our friend from Mastering Diabetes, Cyrus Kambata. We also just got confirmation that Dan Butner will be part of the series. So more names still to come, Yo. but the first two weeks Yo. of 2023. This is the dream team. It is the dream team of health, man. We are bringing in the new year in the biggest epic way possible, man. So I appreciate you coming on and being part of that. It would not be the same without you. That's incredible, Chuck. Well, that's going to be such a fun time. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm so pumped. So get your questions ready. All right. January 3rd, the All-Stars of Health, it kicks off. The dream team. All right. And then you're going to be back with us on January 5th. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, man, appreciate your time today, dude. This has been a great show as always. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays to everyone. I hope you have a, uh, a healthy uh, holiday season, that you spend time with family, with people that you love, and that we kick off 2023 in style. Mean plants. Of course, there are links to everything right now in the episode notes. I'm pumped, by the way, that Dr. B will be back with us as one of our all-stars of health to kick off the new year. He's going to be back on the exam room live January 5th. So set a reminder, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. And again, two weeks of the exam room live every day to get you ready for the new year, get you optimized, get your health optimized so you can make 2023 the healthiest year to date. 
But if you just can't wait, well, the Barnard Medical Center is here to help today. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. I want to take a minute to say a huge congratulations to the newest group of Food for Life instructors. This is really our biggest graduating class ever. 68 new instructors spanning the globe, literally around the world. New instructors now in Hong Kong and Tunisia and South Africa. As a matter of fact, the Food for Life program now has 385 instructors in 32 countries and 47 states and all of them are ready to help teach you the fundamentals of healthy eating to help prevent chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease diabetes all of the big ones that you want no part of they can help to get your health back on track so find a class near you right now at pcrm.org slash FFL. That is pcrm.org slash FFL. And there is a link to that website right now in the episode notes as well. A big congratulations once again to everyone there. And I am telling you, these are about the most health passionate people you could ever hope to find. Really people who you want to work with to take charge of your own health. So pcrm.org slash FFL. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here and helping to raise our gut health IQs and telling us the five foods that we should be kicking to the curb right now. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs> <laughs>